That's Acts chapter 9. Let me just read a couple of verses to start with before we reflect. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Let's just pause there for a moment. And in a way, Saul has won in Jerusalem. In a way, Saul's won in Jerusalem, right? He, he is at the epicenter of this persecution that's rising up against this, this, uh, this nascent church that's just off the ground. And he's won. It's been scattered. The church has been driven out of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us it's only the apostles who are left behind in Jerusalem. Saul's got, got rid of them. He's kicked them out. Presumably the apostles are hiding somewhere. And now he's on his way to Damascus. Is he going to win in Damascus as well? Is the, is the church going to get stamped out? Now, most of you know the end of this story, so it's hard for you to really feel the drama here, isn't it? We kind of know that this is, this is a very, very well-known story we're looking at tonight. It's hard for us to put ourselves back in the middle of it. But for... For a minute, just imagine what the Christians in Damascus must have been thinking. For them, right, the, the arch enemy of Jesus' followers, the arch enemy is coming. This one who is on his way, who, who has driven them out of Jerusalem, he forced them out and scattered them. The one, who, the one who has stood by while Stephen has been stoned to death. The, the one who cast his vote against some of them so they were killed. We're told in Acts 26, verse 10. And they know he's coming. They know he's coming and they know why he's coming. Look at verse 13 and 14. We haven't read them yet, but Ananias says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Or down in verse 21. Everyone, all who heard him in Damascus, all who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? See, these Christians in Damascus must have actually been very afraid. Perhaps they're going to need to flee again. Is that what's next? But where? I mean, Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem. Like a week's journey. If Saul will follow them 150 miles to try and stamp this out, well, where can they go? Where, where are they going to go that's going to be safe from somebody like that? Was there ever going to be any escape? Are they going to need to live in hiding forever? Are they going to all end up dead? Is that the big plan? Like Stephen? How come God is allowing Saul to have the upper hand? What, why is the opposition winning? Have they, have they been abandoned? Is this really going to be the end of the church? Can you imagine? This is what they were thinking in Damascus when they heard Paul was coming, when they heard Saul was coming. Have you ever faced anything like that? Have you ever had that feeling of being cornered? Of this sort of creeping doom approaching that you can't see any light? You know that it's almost inevitable 
that it's coming for you? Maybe not. But I'm sure we have brothers and sisters around the world right now who feel this very much. Imagine, imagine living on the frontiers of ISIS's caliphate in the Middle East. Okay, Imagine seeing ISIS draw near, knowing that inside the area they control, they have basically destroyed the church. Imagine, imagine being there and seeing them coming towards you. Then you get a bit more of a picture of what it feels like to be in Damascus, don't you? Or imagine in that terrible story from Kenya where the Islamic militants assaulted a school and went from classroom to classroom, killing people, killing Christians. There you are. You know they're working their way down the corridor. They're coming your way. Is there any escape? So this might not, this might not feel like an experience that we're facing, maybe not something that we can identify with, but this is something the church is facing for real today. Still, though, I wonder if you have had times where you've questioned the survivability of the church, where you wonder whether we really have any future in this country even. We've been driven to the margins. I don't know if you've seen charts about how many people will go to church on any particular Sunday or tell you that they believe in Jesus, but I can tell you what those charts look like. They go down and down and down towards zero really fast. Have you wondered whether Christianity in this country is really just going to be brushed aside by this new rising tide of aggressive secularism? Or maybe really in this country, Christianity is going to get pushed aside by the disinterest of a world anesthetized by endless entertainment. Where perhaps the deepest question most of your friends are wrestling with is, which video of kittens to watch next? Right? A, a life spent stumbling mindlessly towards the grave, iPhone in hand. Is that what's going to exterminate the church in this country? If you've ever felt the pain of our brothers and sisters as they face this aggressive assault, or if you've ever wondered about what future we have as we've been pushed more and more to the margins as a people, well, I think what we're reading today has something important to show us. It says God's plan is unstoppable. It says God's plan is unstoppable. We're going to read on and uh, explore this together. So let's pick up again. It's on page 1102 again. Pick up a verse 3 and, uh, and read a little more of Saul's story together. So from verse 3. This is uh, for Saul. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. 
Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And again, we'll pause there and pick up again in a moment. So Saul is coming to persecute the church, but then God steps in and we see this this exceptional divine intervention, this kind of, well, this Damascus Road experience. I was going to say it's kind of a Damascus Road experience, but then it is in fact the Damascus Road experience, so that's unsurprising, really. Um, the, the, The hunter of Christians suddenly does a 180 and becomes one of them. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, how quick and how complete and how, how complete this turnaround is. How, how dramatic is this for Saul's companions? They're thinking they're going to go arrest some Christians and bring them back, probably to kill them. How dramatic is this for the Christians in Damascus? This guy's coming to exterminate us. He wants to join the team. The bright light shines and everyone falls to the ground and are shaken up. And humbled Saul is led by the hand into this Damascus that he came to shake up. And then you have this simultaneous vision going on. Ananias sees a vision of Saul having a vision of... And it's kind of like going round and round a bit there. Ananias has a vision of Saul having a vision of Ananias coming to lay his hands on him. I want to notice just how exact and specific this is. There's no kind of, I see a picture of an apple. Or is it an orange? Uh, and I, I, I think it means God loves you. There's not that sort of vision, is it? Look at verse 11. What sort of vision is it he's having? Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. There's a man from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's having a vision right now. It's a vision of you. And he knows your name, Ananias. You're going to lay your hands on him. How specific and exact and detailed is that? If God really wants to tell you something, he can tell you. If he wants to direct your next steps exactly, if he wants you to know exactly what you should do, which turning to take, which car to buy, or anything like that, he could tell you. He's quite able to make himself perfectly clear. But we need to stop and step back for a moment and consider just how remarkable it is that Jesus would reach out to Saul. This Saul To come and meet him and speak to him on the road. You see, Saul has been destroying Jesus' church, hasn't he? He's filled with anger and hatred. He's throwing people who follow Jesus into prison. He's voting to have them killed. He wants nothing less than to exterminate the church of Jesus. 
and the name of Jesus to wipe it from the face of the earth. That's what he wants to do. And he's willing to travel hundreds of miles to finish it off. The, the, the words used for his actions in the original language are, are, are extreme. They're almost bestial. They kind of describe this you're ravaging that's going on. It says um, he, he began to ravage the church. He's, he's breathing out murderous threats. He's almost out of control. Why would Jesus reach out to him? Why does Jesus reach out to him? And actually, it's even more acute than this. He's not just persecuting Jesus' church. Look at verse 4. What does he say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Saul isn't just attacking Jesus' church. He's attacking Jesus. Look at verse 5. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he says. He's attacking Jesus himself. But hang on, when did, when did Saul attack Jesus? Hasn't Jesus risen and ascended and gone to heaven? How can Saul be busy attacking him? Well, the Bible describes the church as Jesus' body. Again and again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Or in Ephesians 4, 12, it calls the church the body of Christ. Or in Colossians 1, 24, Paul says he suffers for the sake of his body, which is the church. Or Ephesians 5.30 tells us we are all members of his body. So there is a way, a very real way in which we, the church, are the body of Jesus. We're Jesus' physical presence on earth right now. When Jesus reaches out, it is through his body, the church. When he touches, when he works, when he serves, it's through us so often. We live and work together for his kingdom in doing that, we are his body. So when Saul hurts the church, he actually hurts Jesus, Jesus' own body. And so he's a very direct enemy, right? He's, a, he's a immediately opposed to Jesus. And yet still Jesus reaches out to him, reaching out to his enemy. Just like he always does, as he's done to each one of us here who would call Jesus our Lord. Romans tells us God demonstrates his love for us in this when, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, while we were still God's enemies, while we were still hostile to God, while we were still saying to God, no thanks, I'm going my own way. That was when he died for us. Jesus reaches out to his enemies. He reaches out to the greatest of his enemies. The Jesus who reaches out to rescue and forgive us. Saul, who persecuted and damaged his church so much, this Jesus has grace enough for you. No matter what you've done. No matter how far you have gone away, no matter how many blockages you have put, between you and God, no matter how many times you have said no to him and turned away, his grace is inexhaustible. Saul has blood on his hand, Jesus' own body, and yet he reaches out to him. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that wonderful? Nobody is too far. But there's another thing I want us to notice in this famous conversion story. Who is driving? Who's driving in this conversion story? Ask yourself, is this Saul the earnest seeker of truth? You know, who is just diligently trying to find out. I really feel the world is too marvelous. There must be a God. I just want to find him. Can I find my way to a God? Is that what this story tells us of? No, no. Now, there are people who do that. This is um, attached together with elastic bands, which is dangerous. Um, This is the case for Christ. This is um, written by Lee Strobel, who's a reporter, and he tells his own story in here. He set out. His wife became a Christian, and it was frustrating. It was annoying to him because she started being all nice and terrible, things like that. Um, And he wanted to set out and and prove it was all a hoax, and it was a lie, a nonsense. And as he did his research and did his homework, as he sought to discover and find out, is this true? Could this be true? Ultimately, he found out, well, yes, yes. There's so much evidence. It actually takes more faith to believe it didn't happen than to believe it did. So some people go searching for God. Some people go searching for God and they find him. And um, if you haven't read this story, if this would be a helpful story to you, I would love to give you a copy of this. Um, I'll have some with me at the end. I'd be delighted to give them away to you. But um, Lee Strobel went looking for God. Saul is not looking for God here, is he? Saul is out to exterminate the church. He's not trying to investigate and explore whether there might be something to it. Let me come to some of your meetings, brothers. I'd like to hear what you say about my scriptures. No, he wants to arrest them and have them killed. He's got his eyes firmly closed to Jesus' good news, hasn't he? No interest whatsoever. And yet, and yet Jesus is seeking him. You want to see a clear, clear demonstration of God's sovereignty, of God's independence and freedom, of his authority, the way he's absolutely in control in the dispensing of his grace? Here's a story like that, isn't it? God chose to rescue Saul. For some of the Christians in this room, they'll have a story more like Lee Strobel's. They'll have a story where they went looking and searching. And Jesus says, seek and you will find, doesn't he? He says, knock and the door will be answered to you. He says, ask and you'll receive. So they seek and they find. Some people have got that sort of story. But for other people here, they'll have a story of God's absolute sovereignty in rescuing them. How the initiation was all on God's side. In a way, I guess my story is a bit like that. I, I became a Christian um, on my own uh, in my room as a student. I, I had been out at a Christian union meeting, but I didn't remember anything that had been said or anything that had been sung. I wasn't struck by anything. There wasn't a magic word. Nobody had spoken to me. There wasn't a special song. I just got home and uh, by myself, one night, out of nowhere, God sovereignly reached out and changed me. And for me, my story was, you know, I, I knew what God wanted. I knew what he wanted for my life. I knew how he wanted me to live. And I just thought, no thanks. No thanks. I'll have it my way. I want to be in control. And one night, out of the blue, God changed me. And I was ready to submit and say, you're God. 
sovereign grace. So, so what? Perhaps, perhaps you're here tonight earnestly searching. And if you are, can I encourage you that those who seek, find. Those who seek, find. Pursue God. Pursue God. He's put that in your heart and you will find him. Jesus longs to come into your life. And if we can help you in any way, we would love to help you do that. And actually, somewhere in my pile. There are these cards in the pews, um, Connect cards, and they've got little spaces on them where you can tick boxes and write some things down. If we can be any help to you, scribble some stuff down in here and uh, hand it to somebody on the way out. We would love to help you with that. But others, perhaps it's not you. Perhaps you're concerned for somebody else. Perhaps you're concerned for somebody else who is opposed to God, somebody who is far away from him, somebody who would never want to consider these ideas. I had an amazing coffee this week with some, some young guys who are utterly convinced that we're just a bundle of random chemicals um, with no purpose apart from preserving an arbitrary sequence of bases in our DNA. And they hated the idea of a God who would tell them what they could do and what they couldn't do. Could people like that, people like that become followers of Jesus? Can that happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is what our story says, read this story and be encouraged. Just like Jesus came for Saul and changed him in a moment, he can come for them too. So pray on. We don't know what our gracious Savior will do, but we do know he can change anyone. Well, let's follow the story on to the end of the scene, shall we? Um, if you pick up again, we're going to read from verse 19, the back of verse 19 uh, in page 1103. <clears throat> Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord... And that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. What a turnaround. Isn't it just remarkable how totally Saul is changed? His life is turned upside down by his experience on the road. He, he sets out from Jerusalem at the start of our story to persecute Christians, but this persecutor going out of Jerusalem ultimately is himself driven out of Jerusalem. By persecution. How do you explain such a change? 
if nothing really happened on the road, if nothing really happened on the road, if, if he just made the whole thing up, if it wasn't real, well, why doesn't he just give it up when it gets difficult and tough? When there's so much at stake, when his old friends will have nothing to do with him, when his new brothers don't really want to know him, thank you very much, when he's threatened, when he's opposed, when there are people seeking to kill him, if he just made this up, why won't he just let it go? Why won't he just confess, well, yeah, I claim I heard a voice, but really, nothing happened, boys, so can we just be friends again? Only because it's true. Only because it really happened. Just like it's hard to explain the disciples' transformation, isn't it? You know, these um, terrified disciples hiding in a room with the doors barred going, we're all going to die. And like a week later, there they are boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus on the streets. And years later, every single one of them ends up dead or with people trying to kill them in various nasty ways. Couldn't they just have gone, you know that whole Jesus thing? Yeah, I made it up, sorry. And they could have got out of it, right? They only stick with it. The only way to explain that is because it's true. It really happened. Now, perhaps, perhaps you're not a Christian here tonight. Perhaps somebody brought you along. Perhaps somebody spurred you to come. Um, do they, though probably in a smaller way, do they present you with that same kind of plausibility challenge? Do they show you a life that has been changed and that lives in a way different from the world that's hard to explain? A change they claim has been driven by meeting this same Jesus? If you don't know their story, why not ask them? Why not ask them what their story is? What what, what happened to you? How did you change? What's it cost? Why are you doing this? There are lots of stories, loads of stories in this room. So I'd encourage you, if you you want to find out some more, go and ask some people for their stories. What have they done and why? I think everyone who follows Jesus would be glad to tell you this story. Do you think we're all just hallucinating? Is everyone making this up? Or perhaps, perhaps this risen Jesus is still busy turning lives around today. And look how far Saul's life has turned. Right away we find him preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. This Jesus he was trying to exterminate. That's a clear and a right identification of who Jesus is. It's astonishing. It astonishes his hearers. It talks about him proving that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah or the the promised Savior and rescuer and deliverer. Now, that's not sort of some scientific test, right? Feed these words in here. True comes out over there. It's not, not something. When it talks about proving here, the, the word literally says placing together. That's what the word literally says. And what, what it means is placing together the texts in the Bible that talk about who this Messiah is and what he's going to do and the actualities of what happened in Jesus' life. Now, there are, there are loads of prophecies, of foretellings about Jesus Um, More than 300 of them that he goes through and completes. And so Saul's got lots of material that he can lay together. He says, look, look, it says here, it says he's going to be born of a virgin. Oh, and he was. Look at that. Look here, it says he's going to suffer for the sins. Oh, and he did. Look at that. Over and over again. So Saul's got loads of material to prove that Jesus fits the bill 
for the Messiah. He escapes a plot, doesn't he? And um, notice how he escapes the plot, by the way. It's his followers who get him out. He's already got followers. He's already teaching and training and raising up a generation of people to follow him in the same mission of, of talking to people about Jesus. He lives to speak another day, though. He's got those threats against him, and he survives. Then in Jerusalem, he's threatened with death, and he escapes and lives to speak another day. Why, why is he getting away when other people in our story see get killed? But whiz back to verse 15 and read with me. What does the Lord say to Ananias? Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. He's got a, he's got a huge, a critical role, doesn't he? He's a, he's a chosen instrument. But that, that's remarkable. Like, well, I think if you've been a Christian for a while, it's really easy to think, yeah, sure, Saul, Paul. I, I knew he was that guy. But imagine it back here, okay? He's been stamping out, persecuting, exterminating the church. And God says, no, I'm going to use him as my appointed instrument to the Gentiles. Not just a bit part. He's not getting a walk-on, walk-off role at the back in the corner in one minor scene, is he? He's going to lead one of the critical advances of the gospel. He's going to bring the gospel to Europe for the first time. Despite his past. Despite his track record, despite his wickedness, that's amazing. Which boss would take the harshest of his opponents and give him the new star product to manage? Huh? Which, which captain will take the player who's failed again and again and give him the key role in the plan? And yet our God takes Saul from the enemy's camp and he puts him right at the front spearheading a new advance. So what? If God can use Saul, he can use you. Your track record, your dark past, your poor performance, none of these things disqualify you from being used by God. None of them put you on the bench forever. None of them contemn you to only ever being an extra or supporting cast. Our God chooses and uses the most unlikely people, doesn't he? Chose me. Last thing, okay. Acts repeats this story. Acts repeats this story three whole times. It's here. It's in chapter 22. It's in chapter 26. That should clue us up that this is a significant story. Back then, paper wasn't cheap. It was, it was expensive. Um, Luke, who wrote Acts, isn't just going to waste it repeating things without a very good reason. Back then, copying books wasn't easy either. It was, uh, people actually wrote out copies by hand, one letter at a time. That must have been a job that makes some of our jobs look positively exciting. People actually wrote out copies by hand. The only, nobody's going to bother copying this story out three times. It doesn't matter. They would just say, oh, and then same thing again. Paul told his story. Compress it, right? Why so significant? Why does it matter so much? Why is this an important story? It's right in the middle of a crucial section that narrates this enormous 
move of the gospel. Do you remember what Jesus said about the gospel in the beginning? Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Three-step plan goes from the disciples to the world. A few weeks back, we were talking about this first step to Samaria, to Judea, a huge, significant advance in the gospel. Next chapter, we're going to be looking at the advance into the Gentiles, the real crossover and the three-step plan. So what's Saul's story doing in the middle of that? Why is it so important? I think it's there to show us just how unstoppable God's plan is. How despite everything people do to resist it, just futile. Despite everything looking bleak and hopeless, despite everything, God will succeed. Do you remember we read earlier in Isaiah? He says, I am God and there is no, none like me. There is no other. He says, my plans will stand. He says, I'll do all that I please. Our God rules and reigns and nothing at all can stand in the way of his plans. He achieves whatever he wants. He chooses whoever he pleases. He uses them for whatever he wants. He rules over everything and he will prevail. Sometimes it might look like all hope is lost, right? Don't you think having just come through Easter, we might be thinking the same things? Jesus is dead. All hope is lost. Remember the disciples on the Emmaus Road talking to each other? We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but he's dead. And then, and then the stone is rolled away, and then the, the tomb is empty, and then he is not here. He is risen. Sometimes it looks like all hope is lost, but that's only when we forget whose team we're on. It's only when we forget just who our God is. So, so be encouraged. Be encouraged in the big story of God's people in this world. If it looks like we're on the retreat, if it looks like we're being overcome, if it looks like the church is failing, God's plan is to make for himself a people from every tribe and every nation, to rescue them through the death, the blood of his own son, and to bring them to new everlasting life with him. And that plan is unstoppable. No one's going to shipwreck that. No one. Be encouraged in the little stories of your lives as well. Remember whose team you're on. Remember that our God succeeds in every one of his plans. He will do all that he's planned. And I'll do it with you too. Let's pray together and then we'll come back to our God with worship. <clears throat>